I'm sure that all of us at one time or another have read the story to our children or grandchildren of the little train that could. Uh, I still uh, remember gathering our two boys up on the couch and uh, dragging out that book, which had been read so often the uh, pictures were worn right off the page from stubby little fingers pointing at the, uh, at the pictures. You know the story, there was a little engine that was loaded with uh, toys and good food for the boys and girls on the other side of the mountain. The little train chugged its way up the hill, broke down, was deeply disappointed for the little children who wouldn't uh, get the goodies. Uh, along came a sleek, streamlined passenger train, which was much too busy to stop and give help, and then a freight engine came along with a lot of weighty matters uh, on its mind. And uh, then an old rusty train that could hardly move came by, and he said he couldn't until finally this little tiny blue train uh, came uh, along and said he thought maybe he could. And the first train offloaded all of the goodies onto the little blue train, and he made his way up the slope. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, until he got to the top. And uh, then his tune changed, I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could, down to the other side. And thus we perpetuated the myth that the possible we do immediately, the impossible takes a little bit longer. Uh, that's a part of the American dream, this idea with enough, uh, enough time and energy and gusto you can get everything done that you want to do. The problem is we wake up from the American dream, as someone has put it recently. We discover there are a number of things in our character that we simply cannot change. We keep running into some irresistible force, some kraken within that we cannot deal with, and we don't know what to do. How do we deal with these passions and lusts and urges that surge within us? Uh, these fears, these, uh, these issues that we simply cannot come to terms with. They dominate us and control us. What should we do? Well, that's the concern that the Apostle Paul has in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Now, uh, we're going to be studying this book over the next few weeks, in fact, until, uh, until the new year. This also is the section of the New Testament which the growth groups will be considering. I would encourage you into a growth group if you're not in one. You'll have a chance to uh, discuss the passage there and then heard it, hear it taught on uh, Sunday morning. Let me give you a little bit of background to this book, and to do so we'll need to turn to the uh, Acts of the Apostles, uh, Luke's uh, History of the Early Church, uh, chapter 17. Will you turn there with me? Acts 17. If you're new to the New Testament, the first four books of the New Testament are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the Acts of the Apostles follows, chapter 17. When they, that is Paul and Silas, had passed through Amphipolis, which was the capital of Macedonia, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. Luke passes over a hundred-mile journey in just, uh, just a few words. I determined once that the Apostle Paul walked the equivalent of 10 to 12 trips across the United States, carrying the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. He must have had legs on him like a Sherpa by the time he, uh, he finished his, his ministry. If uh, they had frequent flyer plans back then, he would have earned a free ticket to Rome. The only problem is that he would have to walk there. 
uh, it gives us some idea of the intensity of his effort, his heart for, uh, for people. He wanted them to hear the good news. And here he traveled from Philippi uh, on to Thessaloniki, uh, which was a journey of almost 100 miles, about 97 or 98 miles. And he, as his custom was, went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, that is, reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue. One of the early Christians appends a note uh, at this point in the history of Acts. It does not belong in the text, but some early believer reading this scribbled it into uh, the margin of one of the early manuscripts, and it's made its way down to us. He inserted at this point, inserting the name of Jesus after the phrase, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. We think that was Paul's method of preaching. He would read an Old Testament passage, such as Isaiah 53, and wherever the name of God occurred, he would insert the name of Jesus, or uh, the, uh, the, the name, the servant of the Lord. Wherever any of those names would occur, he would insert Jesus' name. And this was his way of reasoning from the scriptures, as Luke puts it, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, that is, Gentiles, who were proselytes. They had, uh, they had become followers of Judaism. And uh, a number of prominent women also believed. But the other Jews, that is the unbelieving Jews, were zealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, fomented a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house. Jason was Paul and Silas' host. In search of Paul and Silas, in order to bring them out to the crowd, Paul and Silas happened to be out getting a cup of coffee. So when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world, who have caused trouble all over the world, uh, have now come here. As some translations put it, these are the people who turned the world upside down. Actually, they had turned it right side up. Uh, Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying there's another king, another lord named Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Rather mild reaction on the part of the Roman officials. They really didn't want to have anything to do with what they thought was an internal dispute between the Jews and uh, members of some other religion. So all they did is to uh, require that Jason guarantee that Paul and Silas would never come back again. This is apparently what Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians 2 when he says he wanted many times to come visit the folks in Thessaloniki. But uh, he, Satan had hindered it, as he puts it. It was the uh, Roman officials who had put a stop to his ministry. But the ministry went on. As Steve pointed out, as far as we know, he only spent three weeks. He may have spent more because he did get a job there in, uh, in uh, the city to support himself. We really don't know how long he stayed there, but it was a very short time. But he left behind the gospel, and the gospel continued to to run and have free course. It was touching lives everywhere, as we'll see, all over the world. Paul and Silas then went down to Berea, on down to Athens, where they were joined by Timothy, and then on to Corinth, where he penned this letter. 
1 Thessalonians is a letter which tells us something about God's uh, passion to communicate. When he wanted to manifest himself, reveal himself, he didn't drop on us an enormous theological tome. Uh, with all of the uh, divisions of systematic theology, theology proper, and ecclesiology, and eschatology, and, and uh, all of those other theological topics, what he did is work through human instruments to write letters, which gives a very personal touch to the gospel. Now, let's look at the letter of 1 Thessalonians. The one thing I wanted you to note from that introduction that Luke gives us to the... Uh, history of the founding of the church is the church was born out of persecution and persecution continued throughout the history of this church and uh, Paul will be referring time and time again to the fact that their response to the gospel came out of the midst of a great deal of opposition it was not easy to be a Christian in Thessaloniki tough city a city of about 200,000 people a large harbor there seaport town commercial center on the Ignatian Way, the Ignatian Way was the main highway between Rome and the east. Uh, a lot of people coming through that part of the world, and a lot of pressure on the Christians to conform. great deal of wealth in that city, with all the attendant problems of, of wealth. Uh, a lot of pressure, competitive city, cutthroat competition, tough place to live as a Christian. And uh, Paul is writing this letter of 1 Thessalonians to put some starch in people's spines, to buck them up, to give them what they need to live uh, in the face of, uh, of a great deal of hostility and misunderstanding. He uh, begins with the introduction that you would normally find uh, in a, a letter, a first century letter. All of them follow the same pattern, something like A to B and then a word of greeting the sender to the recipient, and then a salutation. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silas, uh, Silas is Silvanus' nickname. Silvanus is the longer form of, that, of his name. And Timothy, who is his young friend, probably in his late teens or early 20s uh, at this time. He had uh, gathered up Timothy on his way through Asia Minor and Lystra. Uh, Timothy probably... Uh, became acquainted with Paul on his first missionary journey, uh, had a godly upbringing, godly mother and grandmother, had been introduced to the God of the Old Testament, came to know the Lord Jesus as that God as a result of Paul's preaching and became his right-hand man. Later was left in the city of Ephesus to pastor that, uh, that church. Then the word of sal salutation. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These folks had two addresses. They lived in Thessaloniki, but they were also in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, those are the same two addresses that uh, those of us who enjoy the friendship of God and fellowship with him, we, we have the same two addresses. We live in Boise. 2503 Bruin Circle on my part, but also in God and in Christ. And it's that second address that makes it possible for us to live with the first address. Uh, a lot of pressure in, in Thessaloniki, a lot of pressure. And yet they were in Christ, and that was their protection. Reminds me of the psalmist 
uh, statements about running into a fortress, getting up on top of a rock, uh, getting under God's protection in some way or the other, because that's the only way we can withstand the pressures of the world. Also reminds me of Jesus' statement in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and no one can pluck them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one can pluck them out of my Father's hand. We can't jump out. We can't wriggle out. He won't let us alone. That's the flip side of the truth that he will never forsake us. Not only will he never forsake us, he'll never... He'll never leave us. He'll never let us go. He just keeps hounding us and harassing us and checking us and balancing us and, and holding us and, 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 and keeping us. And that's our protection in this world. It's the only protection we have. Uh, Carolyn and I took our grandkids to see uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids the other day. And Melanie, our six-year-old, was sitting right next to me, kind of cuddled up to uh, Nana, uh, Carolyn, and as the uh, movie got a little more tense, and as the uh, scorpion, you know, they were real small and the scorpion was big and there was a great deal of danger, Melanie starts scooting over a little closer to me and a little closer to me. And, and then finally she said, Nana, is it okay if I get in Papa's lap? And she didn't want Nana to feel bad. And uh, so she got in my lap and she grabbed my arm and just kind of pulled my arm around her like that. And, and I gave her a big bear hug and just kind of held her all through the scary part of the movie. And then when the aunt died, which was a real tragedy, little tears started running down her face. And so I just uh, just kept hugging her. And I, and I thought of this, uh, this statement of the Apostle Paul, you know, the threats are, are much more real than something on a screen out there. They're very real. There's a great deal of hostility and misunderstanding and misapprehension of what it means to be a Christian out there. But we're in good hands. We're in good hands. And whenever tragedy strikes and whenever we hurt and our hearts ache, there are those big loving arms around us. We may be in a great deal of trouble, but we are in God and in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, what follows through the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians is a series of uh, reminiscences and anecdotes, uh, very personal Letter. This, by the way, is the first letter that Paul wrote, the first inspired letter that we know anything uh, thing about. And uh, much of it is autobiographical. He describes in great detail his love for the people in this city and his concern for them and the way he conducted himself while he was with them. And whenever he thought of them, he said he has this, uh, you know, what he thinks of is, is, is thanksgiving. He is so grateful for these people. And he says in verse 2, we always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. Whenever Paul knelt to pray for these people and, and the names and faces of people like Aristarchus and Secundus and others that were part of that, that body of believers in Thessalonica, he would, he would be so thankful for them, remembering the work that God had, had done in their hearts. He says, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Or as some translations put it, the work of faith, the labor of love, and the endurance of hope. Three tangibles, three things that are seen, three that are unseen. Uh, Work, labor, and perseverance or endurance can be observed 
Faith, love, and hope are the underlying unseen invisible qualities that make the external manifestations of God's life possible. There is a work that God is doing in our life by faith. There is a labor which we do because of God's love. And we endure, we tough it out, we hang in there because we're inspired by hope. Now, the work produced by faith, I believe, is Paul's shorthand way of referring to the process of salvation. Theologians talk about the three tenses of salvation. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. By that they mean we have been saved from the guilt and penalty of the past. We have been forgiven all of our sins by God's grace and because of the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. It's because of that forgiveness we are reconciled to God and we have a relationship with him. Then there is the ongoing process of salvation and finally ultimate salvation, uh, which is uh, which is heaven. It's uh, all that's coming to us when we stand before God. So we have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. That's the work of faith. And included in this is this notion of sanctification. Now that's one of those theological words that people stumble over. It sounds like some kind of religious sheep dip, you know, something happens to you and and you're, you're changed or you have some strange experience and you see dancing lights and from that point on you shimmer and shine, float six inches off the ground and... And you're, you're radically different and everything. No, 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 no. Sanctification just means God putting you to his intended purpose. That's all. Making you what God intends you to be. And that's the work of God. That's why it has to be done by faith. How audacious of us to think we can do God's work. Only God can change people. Only God can deliver from their past. Only God could die for our sins. Only God can preserve us through this life. Only God can prepare heaven for us. What makes us think we can do it? The disciples came to Jesus once and asked him, What shall we do to work the works of God? Same expression. Jesus said, This is the work of God. What? That you work harder? That you try harder? No, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he he has sent. Um, it is by faith that the work of God is done. We did not save ourselves. Paul makes this argument in the book of Galatians. We cannot sanctify ourselves. As Jesus put it, the flesh, our basic humanity, profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. What a relief it is to discover that we do not have to try harder or work harder to be acceptable to God or to deal with our sin or to atone for our past or to grow as a believer. It is all of God. We can choose righteousness. We cannot produce it. Only God can produce it. But unfortunately, there are a number of Christians out there for whom the Christian life is a monumental drag. They are trying their hardest, and they are miserable, in spite of what Jesus said about his yoke being easy and his burden being light. They have not yet understood that only God can produce his life in us. It's the indwelling life of Christ in us that produces righteousness. There is no other way. We simply have to ask him. Now, let me give you a kind of a corny illustration. Some of you have seen my beat-up uh, old Jeep Wagoneer out there, and it's got about 100,000 miles on it. It's about to fall apart. Something's always falling I carry a screwdriver and a pair of pliers with me everywhere I go because something has always fallen off of that thing. 
And uh, one of these days, it's going to give up the ghost, and I'm going to have to buy something else. Uh, let's imagine, and this is just theory, that I buy a brand-new Jeep Wagoneer. Can't afford one, but let's just imagine that I do. And I bring it over to your house, and I'm going to show you this marvelous machine. I pull up to your front yard, and I ring your doorbell, and you come out, and I say, I'd like to take you for a spin. So you sit down in those wonderful lush leather seats, and you turn on my stereo and uh, turn on the air conditioner, and you're, you're going to enjoy a trip with me. And I say, just a moment, and I close the door, and I go around the back, and I start pushing it. And it's one of those warm September days, and after a while, the perspiration is pouring off of me. And after 10 minutes, we've made about a half block. And you come around and say, uh, can I ask what you're doing? And I say, well, I'm taking you for a ride. Aren't you enjoying it? And you say, well, I don't think you understand the process. You see, down underneath the hood is an engine. Let me show you what to do. You get in the car, and I'll take you for a spin. So you get in the car, and you turn the switch, and you hear this vroom, vroom, vroom up front. And I say, what's that? You say, that's the engine. That's what makes this thing go. And you step on the accelerator, and away we go. And I sit back. Is this what, it, is this what it's like? Here, I've been pushing that thing for years. <laughs> I am so tired at the end of the day, I can hardly stand straight up and down. I mean, this is what it's all about. You say, yes, it's the engine, it's the dynamic that makes this thing go. Jesus said, as the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he that eats me shall live of me. In other words, when you get Jesus down inside of you, when the Spirit of Christ is indwelling you, you enjoy a dynamic and a power that you, that you never had before. You begin to grow as a result of his activity within you. Now, that's what Paul means by the work of faith. Now, the second uh, uh, comment that he makes about these people in, uh, in the city is that they were possessed of a labor of love, a labor prompted by love. He uses a bit stronger word for labor. It stresses uh, that it's sometimes a little arduous to do this thing. He's basically talking about loving and serving people. The work of faith has to do with our personal salvation. The labor of love has to do with our service to others. Our service is prompted by love. As someone has put it, by love, capital L, our love is inspired, lowercase l. In other words, it's because of the love of God for us, it's because the love of God has been poured in our hearts that we can begin to love other people and care for them. It is sometimes arduous. It is sometimes strenuous. It is sometimes hard to love people. But once we understand the intensity and the immensity of God's love for us, we can love people just as they are. We can accept them. And we can begin to love them as, as our Lord loves us. That is not a love that we can produce on our own. It comes from our relationship with him. It's putting our roots into him, learning to devote ourselves to him, drawing upon his word, living in his presence. It's from that, uh, it's from his, uh, his love that we're able to love others, and that changes us. Then when we go out to cut wood, we don't just cut wood for ourselves. We cut wood for single parents and others that are unable to bring in a wood supply. Then we uh, go over and mow somebody else's lawn when they're laid up for a while and they're not able to do it. Or we take food into people that, uh, that are ill or we take their kids off their hands. Or when we as a family go off to, on some outing, we take along with us some single parent and 
and their children. You see, it's a whole, just an entirely different orientation to our life. Instead of thinking about ourselves and our things, we're willing to give our time away. We're willing to give our toys away. We're willing to, to give our energy and our efforts and, and other things for, and things for other people's sake. See, that is the radical change. It begins to occur when the love of God is, is poured into our hearts. As we saw last week, when, when somebody stumbles and falls, we don't gossip about them. We don't create more problems for them. We go to them and we help them get to their feet. We encourage them. Uh, some of you, I'm sure, were at the BSU uh, Long Beach State game last night. And there was an incident that happened that powerfully illustrated this principle to me. One of BSU's most sure-handed receivers dropped a pass. That was a sure touchdown. He was way out in the old. I mean, it was six points on the board. And he hardly ever misses and drops a pass like that. And he dropped it, a perfect pass. And uh, he was so embarrassed and, and just felt horrible. Here in front of 20,000 people, he dropped the ball, and as well as everyone who was listening on the radio. But I noticed when he ran to the sideline, no one kicked him. They didn't pick up the bench and hit him over the head with it. (laughs) Nobody poured Gatorade over his head. You know what happened? Two great big old guys lumbered over and put their arms around him and gave him a big old hug. And I have no idea what they were saying. We were clear across on the other side. But I could imagine they were saying, it's okay, it's okay. We're going to get the next one. Gave him a little pat on the behind and... He went over, and I'm sure he felt felt very bad about that. But nevertheless, he received the support and encouragement of, of that bunch of guys. And, and that's what it means to be in the body of Christ and to have the love of Christ poured into your heart. And you see someone stumble and fall, you just go over and throw your arms around them and help them get going. That's different. That doesn't happen normally. But it happens within the church when we understand the labor that, that comes from love. And then finally, uh, he says, I, I note your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They kept working. They kept laboring because they knew what, would, what, what was in store for them. There was an inheritance laid up in heaven for them, which was certain and sure and reserved and kept. That's what hope is. Most people don't have any hope. They're without God and they're without hope. They think when they die, that's all there is. And that takes all the life out of living. But once we know that we have an eternal destiny and that destiny is fixed and we're not going to lose it and we're not going to lose out, that keeps us working and laboring and ministry, and caring for people, and asking God to, to change us. We don't give up. We don't give out. We just keep plugging on because we, we know there's something else up ahead. As John puts it in his little epistle, loved ones, he says, now you, we are the children of God. It doesn't yet appear that we are. You don't look like children of God. You just look like ordinary human beings. But you are sons of God. John says. And when we shall appear, we'll be like him. We'll be transformed into his character. For we shall see him as he is. That's our hope. That's what's up ahead. That's the only thing really hoping for because everything else lets us down. Everything else disappoints us. No one else comes through for us like God. But 
one of these days, he's either going to come back and get you, or you're going to die and go to be with him. But in any case, you're going to get your inheritance then. Everything you have coming to you. And that's what keeps us working on our marriages. That's what keeps us loving our children. That's what keeps us serving those that uh, that, that are helpless and weak. We just keep giving because we know this, this isn't all there is. We have not yet arrived. It also delivers, from, delivers us from a lot of false illusions, feeling that uh, the next big event is somehow going to satisfy us. Never does. Never does. You remember what it was like in high school, you know, the big date on Friday night, and you lived all week with the terror of developing a zit before Friday showed up, and, and miraculously on Friday morning you woke up clear-skinned, and you were so excited about this date. You go out with this hunk that you've been admiring for, uh, you know, for, for the whole year, and, and then it turns out that the hunk doesn't have a brain. I mean, you know, there's nothing up there. What a, what a disappointment. That's all he is, is a hunk. And, and big letdown. You know, so you think, well, graduation must be the big event. And graduation comes and goes, and it's just like watching 100,000 roll up on your speedometer. You know, it comes and goes, big deal, and you just go on with life. And, and then you think, well, it's, it's the job, or it's college, or it's getting married, or it's children, or it's getting our portfolio together, or it's retirement. Or, and then the biggest deal of all is death, and that's certainly no big deal. And we just kind of go from event to event, waiting for the next big deal that's going to fulfill us. And it never does, because we have not arrived until we get to heaven. That's what we got to realize. Taking your kids to Disneyland lately? Remember what that's like? You get outside the Boise city limits, they say, are we there yet? <laughs> nope, not there yet. You get to Winnemucca, are we there yet? Nope. How much farther? Oh, quite a ways, quite a ways. Ever going to get there? Yeah, we'll get there. You get to Reno, are we there yet? Nope. Not, no, we're not there yet. You get to Sacramento, is this it? Is this Disneyland? No. And finally you get there and you take your kids out of the car and they walk up to the gate and you say, there it is, kids, we've arrived. Everything you've ever wanted to do or see, that, that, that's it. We're here. And that's the way we go through life. We get married. Have arrived yet? No. No. Have children. Have I arrived? No, we don't arrive till we get there. But it's the, it's the certainty of that arrival that keeps us going. It's the thought of going home that keeps us going. And that's what Paul means by the endurance uh, that is inspired by hope. Now, uh, quickly, the next paragraph. I want to explain what Paul is doing in this uh, final paragraph in chapter 1. He wants us to know how we know we have been called into a relationship with God. He's speaking first to the Thessalon, uh, people in Thessaloniki. He is also speaking to us. The question often comes out, uh, how do we know we've been called and chosen? How do we know we belong to God? How do we know we're in, in the family? These are the marks. This is the way he calls us into relationship with him. Brothers, loved by God, we know that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words or in words. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. That's an interesting phrase. You began to imitate the apostles and you began to imitate the Lord. 
you did this in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message, the word that we gave with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia. That's uh, the southern part of Greece. If you can picture in your mind a map of Greece, it sort of looks like a hand with the uh, Peloponnesus having little peninsulas that, that extend down into the Aegean Sea. Macedonia would be up here where your wrist is. Achaia is down in the south, the southern part of, uh, of Greece where Corinth and Athens were located. It says, you became a model of all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's word rang out, literally thundered out, reverberated uh, from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. How about that? Uh, evidently, uh, Paul had heard from some part of the Roman Empire that the story of the, th- of the people in, in Thessalonica was known everywhere. Uh, it's suggested that Aquila and Priscilla, who had just been uh, forced out of Rome as a result of an imperial edict, all Jews were, uh, were told to leave Rome. It's been suggested that they then joined the Apostle Paul down in Corinth. They told him it in Rome. We're hearing about these folks that, that live up there in Thessalonica that, in whom God is doing this, this amazing thing. Paul says, we don't even need to, to talk about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn from God to serve the living and true God. That's always the order. You turn from God to idols, not from idols to God. Only God can deliver us from our idols. The things that we center on, the things that we worship, the things that we offer incense to, the things we think about, the preoccupations that, that we have. These are our idols but turning to God delivers us from idolatry to serve the living and true God. Paul's word for true is actually the word for real. The real God in contrast to all the spurious false gods. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. One of these days God's going to take off the wraps. And he's going to judge the world. And Paul is saying you won't be there. You'll be delivered. You'll be rescued from the wrath to come. And what characterizes your life now, he says, is that you're serving the living and real God and you're waiting for his son uh, from heaven. Would to God that that were the Apostle Paul's description of us as a church and as individual Christians, that we're serving God and we're waiting for his son. In other words, we have a divine perspective an eternal perspective, a heavenly perspective. We're storing up treasure in heaven rather than, uh, than, than piling it up here. Now, I want you to notice the process by which they were called into God's grace, and I must do this very quickly. First thing you know is that God loves you. He loves you even before you're, you're his. Everything starts with God's love. John 3.16 says God so loved the world. That he gave. So many people think that God is mad. He's just a cranky old curmudgeon who's out of sorts and so insecure that he can't stand it that people don't don't respond to his love. And so he's storming around heaven, heaven like Thor, meeting out judgment and and angry at everyone because they can't get it right. I just want you to know that isn't true. We're loved of God, deeply loved of God. 
And I find as a consequence of that that our hearts set up a sympathetic vibration to that love. You ever, uh, have you ever sung a note and uh, heard the strings reverberate inside? That's what God is doing. When he sings his love song to us, our hearts begin to reverberate. That's where that longing comes from. That's where that yearning. That's where that ache. You know, so There's something in us. We want something so bad our hearts fairly ache, but we don't know what it is. And nothing satisfies it because, you see, that's God singing his love song to us, creating that ache, that hunger, wanting us to move toward him. So it begins with the love that God has for us, and then it continues on until we begin to make sense out of the gospel. Paul says, our gospel came to you in words. He goes on to say, not simply with words, but it did come in words. Later, he describes the message that they received in verse 6. You welcome the message with joy. You know what that is? Time and time again, I've heard people say they walked into a congregation where the word was being taught or into a Bible study, and they heard the scriptures being taught, and for the first time in their life, they sounded like good news. It sounded like good news. Uh, It used to be that they couldn't stand to hear it. It didn't make any sense to them, and all of a sudden, it began to appeal to them. It began to make sense. And uh, then after a while, they, they find themselves welcoming more and more of it into their hearts. That's what Paul means when he says, you, you welcomed, you invited the message in. You become convinced that it's true. It rings true. Even though you don't have all of the necessary proofs, it just sounds like truth. And so you welcome it. You invite it in. And then you find yourself beginning to think like God thinks. You begin to have what Paul calls the mind of Christ. Before you know it, you're thinking like God thinks. You look at yourself and you realize how sinful you are. All along you've thought you were a very good person. And then you begin to think God's thoughts after him. And you're, I'm not a very good person. I have a lot of secret sins that no one else knows about. But I know about them and God knows about them. And then you, 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 you read that God came to earth and he died for those sins. And that makes a lot of sense to you. And so you begin to believe it. You begin to accept it. And little by little, God begins to teach you more and more of himself and work his magic on your life. And, and then there's this mysterious thing that is described as the new birth. We don't fully understand it. Jesus said we don't. It's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. It just, it just works. And your heart is changed and you become a member of God's family. And then you, you want to know more and more of his word. You have this insatiable hunger for the Bible. You can't put the thing down. And every time you read it, it makes tremendous sense to you. Not only does it ring true, you begin to ring true. You begin to live out the, the, the message. And you see what's happened? The word has begun to do its work in your life. I had a young woman come up to me after the morning service. And confirm how this works. She said, you know, nine years ago, uh, nine years ago, I read your doctrinal statement and I could not agree with it. Our doctrinal statement is very simple. It's just, it's just really the Apostles' Creed written in another form. Very basic Christian uh, set of beliefs. And she said, I read it and I couldn't believe it. But she said, nine years have passed and I read it this last week and I agree with everything in it. And I thought, I just chuckled. I thought, yeah, that's exactly how it works. What's happened is that that the word has begun to conform our thinking to the point where we, we begin to have the mind of Christ. We think God's thoughts after him.
And then as that process continues, our lives begin to change and we begin to exhibit more and more of the truth of God in our life. And everywhere we go, people say, my, there's something unique about that person. They have a different set of values. They respond to criticism differently than anyone else. It's very difficult to upset them. They're tranquil. They're gentle. They're strong. And there's a winsomeness about them that's enormously attractive. And uh, they begin to wonder what, what's occurred. And then we have an opportunity to tell them about the Lord who's changed us. You know, that, the most effective witness in this town is a group of people just like you and me living out there with our neighbors, making our mistakes, fumbling along, not always getting it right, but moving toward the likeness of Christ. It's that that has a, a powerful, penetrating influence on others. People have said to me, don't you ever have altar calls? Yeah, we do sometimes. But primarily our concern here on Sunday morning is to help you see what you have going for you in Christ and to begin to dip into that wealth that you have. Permit the Spirit of God to change your life. Put you out in your world in contact with your friends where you can can impart the truth that God is, is teaching to you. That's the most effective evangelism going have nothing against crusades and campaigns. We enjoyed Billy Graham when he was here, and, and I appreciate very much what Luis Palau is doing and his worldwide uh, effort at, his effort at worldwide evangelism. But I'm convinced the most profound witness comes right out of a body of believers like this who ring true. Not perfect. They're not perfect. But they ring true. They are not phonies. They know God. They love him. And they are manifesting the life of God. And where does all that come from? From self-effort? No, no. It comes from faith. This is the work of God. That you believe on him whom he has sent. Uh, In closing, I want to read a quotation from Brennan Manning. The only lasting freedom from myself, he says, comes from a profound awareness that God loves me as I am. And not as I should be, that he loves me beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves me in the morning sun and in the evening rain without caution, regret, boundary, limit, or breaking point, that no matter what I do, he can't stop loving me. The biggest mistake I can make is to say to God, Lord, if I change, you'll love me, won't you? The Lord's reply is always, wait a minute. You've got it all wrong. You don't have to change, so I'll love you. I love you, so you'll change. I simply expose myself to the love that is everything and have an immense, unshakable, reckless, raging confidence that God loves me so much that he'll change me and fashion me into the person that I always wanted to be. That's the good news. Let's stand. And let's commit our hearts and our lives to the Lord again and ask him to continue the work that he's begun. It is indeed good news, Lord, to hear that we do not have to try harder or in some way lift ourselves by our own bootstraps or try to impress you with our goodness or perfect ourselves in any way. You simply ask us to come and stand at the foot of the cross and admit that we're dreadful sinners in need of your salvation, desperately in need of your presence in our life, very much wanting your power to be manifest in us so we can be the people that you've called us to be. 
We would like it said of us that the whole state of Idaho is taking the gospel seriously because they have seen the work of God in our hearts. We ask that that would be true. That you would live and move in our midst and you would change our hearts and our lives and conform us more and more to your character so that wherever we go, we'll be what you've intended us to be. We ask this in faith and with great confidence because you've promised to do so. And you're the God who cannot lie. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.